Welcome back to Uncommon Law. This is part three of our continuing series on the Federal Trade Commission's proposal to ban non-compete agreements from the American workforce. We've talked a lot about the personal impact of non-competes. We've looked at how helpful they can be to business owners in competitive industries who worry about training their employees only to lose them to a competitor, along with whatever customers they might take with them. We've also explored how non-competes can cause employees to lose sleep, to lose money, to live in fear that their old employer might try to stop them from pursuing their livelihood. But some supporters of a ban say non-competes have an even broader impact. They don't just affect the individual worker or the individual employer. Believe it or not, non-competes might actually affect the economy at large and innovation, and even the fancy electronic gadgets we all use every day. Lawyers have written so much about non-compete agreements. Once again, University of Maryland economist Evan Starr. And the history of non-compete agreements is so long, it goes back to the 1400s and English common law. And then if you're reading some of the recent stuff in the late 1990s and early 2000s, you had people talking about how California's ban on non-competes in the 1870s was a key ingredient to the rise of Silicon Valley. 1870s? Yeah, California banned non-compete agreements in the 1870s. And how did that... I'm, now I'm just curious. And I'm gonna Today, on, on Uncommon Law. Silicon Valley was 100 years later. Was 100 years later. Is California's ban on non-compete agreements actually a key component to Silicon Valley's success? California is one of just three states where non-compete agreements are almost completely banned. California is also the home of Silicon Valley, the global hub of technological innovation. Is that just a coincidence? Or would Silicon Valley be as successful even if non-compete agreements were allowed? In order to answer that question, we need to understand how Silicon Valley became such a powerhouse in the first place. Okay, so plenty of industrial districts around the country have tried to replicate the success of Silicon Valley, sometimes by using silicon in their name. Silicon Hills and Silicon Prairie, those are actually nicknames for Austin and for Dallas, Texas. I mean, you remember the Silicon Alley push 10, 15 years ago. Denver, which is trying to position itself as Silicon Mountain. The Silicon Forest, the Silicon Desert, and now the Silicon Heartland. Silicon Prairie, Silicon Glen, Silicon Beach, it never sticks. It turns out, yeah, calling it a Silicon something does not make it happen, nor does building a fancy research park and hoping that they will come. <laughs> There's only one Silicon Valley, and it is the product of some very specific circumstances. This is Margaret O'Mara. I'm Margaret O'Mara, professor of history at the University of Washington. Who wrote a book called The Code, A History of Silicon Valley, which at one point was filled not with silicon, but with fruit. Before Silicon Valley was just the plain old Santa Clara Valley of California. It was an agricultural valley. Uh, San Jose was known as the prune capital of the United States 100 years ago. The one thing that distinguished it from other agricultural valleys in California was the presence of Stanford University. When telling the story of Silicon Valley, you could start at a bunch of different key points. The founding of Stanford in 1885, the establishment of Hewlett-Packard in 1939, or even the World War II research conducted in the area. But particularly important in this story 
is former Bell Labs engineer William Shockley, co-inventor of the transistor. So that's where we'll start. These tiny transistors are destined to play a big part in our electronic age. They will make possible smaller, more compact electronic devices that will need less maintenance and have a longer life. Shockley Semiconductor, the um, short-lived first semiconductor startup founded by the co-inventor of the transistor, William Shockley, in the mid-50s. Uh, he brings out a bunch of young recruits to work for him because turns out none of the people who worked for him at Bell Labs decided to come with him when he did his own startup. There's a reason no one from Bell Labs wanted to come. Shockley was a brilliant scientist, but not the best guy to work for. He micromanaged, wouldn't let his employees share their research with each other, accused everyone of lying, demanded polygraph tests. He actually was a terrible boss. The young engineers working under Shockley were like, we can't work for this guy anymore. And so eight of the guys that came to work for him all got together, left en masse, found some outside funding, and established Fairchild Semiconductor, which is really the original venture-backed startup. Are you talking about the Traitorous Eight? The Traitorous Eight, yes. Fairchild was founded in late 1957, which was actually a serendipitous time to form a semiconductor company. History nerds in the audience might, when I say October 1957, you might start thinking, 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 what's going on, what's going on. Oh, Sputnik. CBS television presents a special report on Sputnik 1, the Soviet space satellite. The Soviets send their first satellite into orbit. They beat the United States into space. A pilotless spaceship man's advance scout in outer space. So now the U.S. starts spending like mad to keep up. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And what do you need to send things to space? You need very small, light, fast electronics. You need microchips, and you need integrated circuits. All of a sudden, there's a big market for silicon semiconductor technology. And there are all these little companies that start. Fairchild was just the beginning there are wonderful posters that basically draw the family tree. Ronald Gilson is Professor Emeritus of Law and Business at Columbia and Stanford, and he's talking about these posters you can find that illustrate the connections between companies in Silicon Valley. If you Google Silicon Valley family tree, you can see it for yourself. It's amazing. It starts with Bell Labs, which invents the transistor, then Shockley, then Fairchild, and then... It explodes. The engineers who left Shockley to form Fairchild didn't stop there. Over the next several years, some of those employees left to form new companies. There's RIM, National Semiconductor, Raytheon, Intel, dozens of others, and the workers at those companies left to start their own companies, and the cycle continued. By some estimates, today, 70% of the public companies in Silicon Valley can be traced back to Fairchild. The companies that came out of Fairchild are called the Fairchildren. Again, Evan Starr. What developed in Silicon Valley was a culture of being able to move, and that if you have a great idea, great, go pursue that idea on your own, bring the people you want to bring, uh, and build it. 
And this is where we get to what some say is the secret sauce, the necessary condition of Silicon Valley's success, without which that explosion of companies and products and innovation would not have been possible. Not something that Silicon Valley has, per se, but something that it doesn't have. California prohibits non-compete agreements. In California, non-compete agreements are simply unenforceable. Talking about unintended consequences of policy that doesn't have a thing to do with the tech industry. Nothing. Nothing to do with Silicon Valley. It just happens to be a quirk of the California Constitution from the 1870s. California hasn't always banned restrictive covenants. In fact, in 1868, the Supreme Court of California explicitly considered the issue in a case about a steamboat. When we return, Bloomberg Law's David Schultz joins us to discuss what I like to call the case of the nautical non-compete. Stick around. The difference between missed opportunity and actionable intelligence. For in-house attorneys who strive to provide superior counsel and strategic advice, Bloomberg Law offers an unmatched platform of analytics tools and business intelligence. All to help improve productivity, mitigate risk, and inform decision-making. For the comprehensive platform that helps you work smarter and faster, the difference is Bloomberg Law. To help discuss this case, I'm going to bring in David Schultz. Check, check. One, two. Host of Bloomberg Laws on the Merits. Thanks for having me, Matt. Well, thank you for being here. Always happy to help out a fellow podcaster. Okay, so in the case, Wright versus Ryder, a California steamship company sold one of its boats to a company from Oregon. Now, as part of the sale, that Oregon company had to agree that for the next 10 years, it wouldn't run that boat on any California waters. Playing the role of the owner of the California Steam Navigation Company is David Schultz. David? Arr! For 75,000 doubloons, I'll give you the boat on the condition that you stay out of our waters for 10 years. Uh, that was that was beautiful, David. Um, I don't think the owner was a pirate. This is called bringing the case to life for your listeners. I'm creating, you know, it's theater of the mind here. I'm creating an image. <sighs> okay. So the California Supreme Court looked at this agreement and said, you know what? A 10-year ban across the whole state does not feel like a reasonable restraint on trade. Arr. But, But the court also looked at the common law around the country and saw that other states did allow these sorts of restraints if they were restricted to, quote, certain reasonable limits or times. Oh, well, that is interesting. But what counts as reasonable? That is indeed the big question. And it's what judges all around the country have to do every time they face a non-compete agreement. A statewide ban for 10 years? Not reasonable. Something less than that? Maybe. It depends. It depends how much it affects the person bound by the contract. And it depends how much that restraint might affect the public good. For example, the court here said that one ship grounded for 10 years probably wouldn't harm the public. But if the steam navigation company sold all of its boats and said they couldn't be used in the state for 10 years, 
it could cause a, quote, great present calamity to the public. It's very fact-specific. So California was going to allow non-competes, just like most of the other states? Yeah, for a few years in the late 1860s, early 1870s, it sure looked that way. The California Supreme Court was adopting the common law rule followed in England and in most other states that allowed reasonable restraints on trade. Okay, David, thank you very much for your help. So, so I actually have more questions? I, you know what? We don't have the time right now. I, thank you. You've been amazing. Shiver me timbers. David Schultz, everybody. So, yes, California common law was on its way to permitting reasonable non-compete agreements. But the state was still pretty new. Its constitution was in flux, and the state statutes were changing. They were bringing in, you know, Spanish law, English law, like you know, a whole mixtape of legal traditions that goes into the California Constitution. One of the songs on the mixtape came from an early draft of the New York Civil Code, which prohibited contracts in restraint of trade. Here's Ronald Gilson. New York didn't adopt it. As far as its concerns, it doesn't exist. But California did adopt it. Today, codified in the California Civil Code. Civil Code, I think it's 16600. Is a sentence that reads, Every contract by which anyone is restrained from engaging in a lawful profession, trade, or business of any kind is, to that extent, void. It is just a blanket prohibition. So, this means that when those eight engineers left Shockley to form their own competing company? The traitorous eight, yes. William Shockley couldn't do a thing about it. That's why. That's why they were able to go. And they were able to go and start making silicon semiconductors, which is exactly what um, Shockley was doing. Once Silicon Valley discovers that they can't stop people from talking to each other and don't really want to, and they can't stop people from changing jobs and don't really want to, when they begin to understand that you've basically created a huge externality, you get Silicon Valley. Professor Romero. Yes. I want you to do a thought experiment right now. And I know the answer that the FTC might want, but I'm curious, with all of your expertise about Silicon Valley, I'm curious whether you would agree. Mm -hmm. Imagine for a moment that California was like almost every other state in the union and that it didn't ban non-competes. That William Shockley could be a horrible micromanaging boss uh, who requires polygraph tests and nobody could leave the company. Well, they, they could leave, but they couldn't start their own competing companies, at least not right away. Mm -hmm. So no Fairchild, no legal infrastructure that lets you meet up with your friends and immediately start a competing company right across the street. Mm -hmm. How would that have impacted the family tree and the success of Silicon Valley? And how might things be different? Mm -hmm. I'm asking you to look into a parallel world. Yo, historians don't like counterfactuals, but... Wait, why... Why don't historians like counterfactuals? Well, because things are unpredictable. Well, look, I think that they would have had to go and kind of go work for an established company like that was doing something slightly different, right? So go work for Sylvania or Lytton or 
Varian or Hewlett Packard or some of the other companies that were around, or maybe go back east, go just leave altogether. Um, it would have also really slowed the the pace of firm creation. It probably would have consolidated a few. I think that you know what what a prohibition on non competes does ultimately, whether it's tech or something else, is it it empowers the employee over the employer. And so in an industry like 1950s and early 1960s Silicon Valley, which is made up of, again, young people who do not have a lot of power connections and wealth coming into this game. They just have themselves and their brains and their training and their young engineers at a time when that's a very valuable commodity. You know, it empowers them to not only work for different employers, but also create enterprises of their own and take advantage of this extraordinary opportunity that's suddenly being plopped down. Could you say for sure whether I would be sitting here with an Apple computer in the Mac ecosystem, like with my iPhone next to me? Like if 70% of today's Silicon Valley companies are descended from Fairchild, it feels like if non-competes were enforced, and the family tree couldn't branch off like that, everything would be different. It would be like that scene in Back to the Future. Let me see that photograph again of your brother. Like going back in time and watching as your brother's image disappears from a photo because your parents never dated. It's like it's been erased. Erased from existence. <laughs> so I think like if that were the case, the existence of Apple Computer and iPhones would be very unlikely. Yes. If I pulled out that non-compete thread and said that those were enforceable, the, the line of advancements and discoveries and companies that led to this, this iPhone, could we pretty much say for sure that wouldn't have happened? Um, I think that that's, well, nothing's for sure, but I think that's a pretty reasonable assumption. Lots of factors contributed to the rise of Silicon Valley. World War II, the space race, the collegial culture, easy access to venture capital. But without California's unique legal infrastructure, so much rapid innovation might not have been possible. That is what supporters of a ban hope will happen. Intellectual cross-pollination that will invigorate industries not just in Silicon Valley, but throughout the whole country. Next time on Uncommon Law. Is easy mobility throughout an industry always a good thing? What does that mean for companies that want to protect their trade secrets? 59% of people admitted to taking information with them when they left. If the FTC's non-compete ban goes through, companies will still be able to use non-disclosure and non-solicitation agreements to protect their intellectual property. But will that be enough? Moving from a company directly to the competitor puts your former employer's information at risk. And what about small business owners who say they need non-competes to survive? There's a lot of investment that you have to put into this game just to start the business. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a, a very competitive industry. Things that happen in this industry, you know, will blow your mind. Could a ban on non-competes do more harm than good? That's next time on Uncommon Law.
Uncommon Law was written and produced by me, Matthew Schwartz. I also did the mixing and sound design for this episode. Uncommon Law was edited by Josh Block, who is the executive producer for videos and podcasts here at Bloomberg Industry Group. I'd like to thank Andrew Satter for his editing help on this episode. Thanks also to David Schultz for being so eager to help and to play the role of a pirate. I thought it would take some convincing, but no, he was just all in from the beginning. And an additional thank you to Tom Taylor, Cheska Antonelli, and Joe Almeyer. See you next time. Let's hear another one. Let's, let's do it one more. Okay, let's, let's get a little sad. That's good. A couple more along those lines. Uh, are you happy with your performance today? No. Did you have fun? Uh, Sort of. What do you mean sort of? You seemed like you're having fun. Yeah, it's called acting. It's called <laughs> this is this is a performance. So you didn't really have fun. You're just pretending that you had fun. I mean, I you know this. Hey, look, I'm at work. Yeah, I, I don't have fun at work. Well, I'm earning a, a dollar a day. That's a sad way to live. <laughs> a doubloon a day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>